Hello, and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Today, we're wrapping up our coverage of this year's Academy Awards with a focus on the Best Animated Feature Film category. Like last year, we have had a number of conversations with the nominated artists, and we bundled them up into one podcast episode just to make it a little easier for you to fill out your Oscars ballot, whether you are an Academy member or whether you just want to win your annual Oscar office pool. This year, the nominees in this category are Encanto, Flea, Luca, The Mitchells vs. The Machines, and Raya and the Last Dragon. Like our best cinematography episode, which we just posted a couple of days ago, so be sure to check that out if you haven't already. We weren't able to schedule time with each of the filmmaking teams to discuss their movies, but I am pleased to say that we have most of the nominated films today on the podcast to bring to you exclusively for the Dolby Institute podcast. For these conversations on best animated feature film, I'm joined by my colleague Stuart Bowling, who is the content and creative relations director for Dolby. First up, in alphabetical order, is Encanto. We recently got to speak with director Byron Howard and producer Yvette Marino to talk about the film. Byron and Yvette, uh, welcome to the Dolby Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk about your very well-deserved Academy Award nomination. Congratulations. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it was awesome. I am always fascinated by the development process, especially on animated films. And I, I, I'm always interested to hear sort of the story about what was the film that you started off making and how, how did it evolve and, and, and end up in this wonderful film that we have now? About five years ago, um, Jared Bush, who directed the film with me, um, we, we, Jared and I were still working on Zootopia. Zootopia was not done yet. Jared was actually doing double, double duty because he was also writing on uh, Moana, uh, Ron and John's musical with, uh, you know, uh, with Lin-Manuel Miranda. And that relationship between Jared and Lynn was already very, very strong. They had a great time working together. And so the three of us started talking about if we could do something next, what would we do? And Jared and I were like, it's got to be a musical, 100%, of course, with, with Lynn. But Jared and I are longtime musicians. Both of us are trombonists. Hilarious. I'm not the, he's better than me, but it's like, it's not the coolest instrument to play, but it was a bond. And, uh, you know, we, we love music. We love the, uh, storytelling through music and all of us in the very beginning, um, talking five years ago, we decided that the movie was going to be about family, but not just family is good, which it frequently is, but also family is complicated. It's very complicated and messy. A lot of us have dysfunctional families. A lot of us have large kind of, uh, Families where conflict is part of, uh, of the daily routine. And we wanted to talk about that and represent that. We thought if we could do that and show a big extended family, which Encanto did wind up being about a dozen characters in that house, a dozen family members. Uh, Lynn, to his credit, really doubled down. He said, I am all in. Like it's, it was a very complicated thing to ask uh, a, song, a songwriter to do. Um, but because he was with us on the very, very first moments of the film, um, and he stayed with us the whole time, even, you know, to this day, like after, you know, five and a half years, he was on that whole journey. So he was our story partner. Um, 
as well. And then when Yvette and Sharice Castro-Smith, our co-director and co-writer joined us, that team got even stronger and more invested. And really it's been five years of learning, not only about the culture of Colombia and extended families and diversity, but also a lot of kind of in-room therapy of talking to each other about our family experiences. So we know each other so well. So anything you wanna know about Yvette, I can tell you right now. <laughs> got all the Better dirty secrets. You know, these films, they they really, um, they go on quite a journey. I was on the film probably for about three years and our process at Disney Animation, uh, early on the director spent a lot of time in development doing a lot of research and um, and then once we kind of move into that, okay, now we're really gonna start making the film, um, you know, we start designing and, and doing research, our, our amazing, um, production designers and artists, this dev artists do the, all this great research on, on, you know, Colombia and, and character design and all that. But we really start kind of screening the film. We'll screen our film. I think for Encanto, we screened eight times and every time, you know, we, <laughs> we put it up and we work hard just to get it up. And, and we screen for our story trust, which are the directors and writers and Jennifer Lee in our studio. Um, and where they just kind of, you know, we all get in a room and say, okay, what do you think? And that process is so amazing because it's so funny because the moment we put it up and we screen it, we work so hard on that version. And then by the end of that day, it's an old version and we're, you know, really trying to move on to the next one. And so, um, but it is one, I think because I started an editorial, it is one of my most favorite things of our process because it's very, very difficult and it's very, uh, taxing just to get there and then to know, you know, to hear your, your colleagues that you respect and, you know, who are amazing and working on their own shows across the studio come in and talk about, uh, you know, you know, questions. I didn't really get this. Oh, you know, and, uh, but really it is, it is how the film, the story just progresses and gets better. And each time it would just get better and better. And then as Byron mentioned, uh, because Lin-Manuel was on so early on, he was there for every single screening and we would sit, you know, after, um, once we were home, you know, we'd sit there with him for hours afterwards and just really kind of go through not just the songs, but we would talk about the story and, and kind of how, how the songs and stories are so can be so intertwined. So, uh, Byron, you said earlier that uh, you knew from the beginning that Encanto had to be a musical, and I wanted to ask you about that because, of course, Zootopia was not. Um, <laughs> so, but you and and you chose to work with a a, a kind of a promising up and coming songwriter, Lin Manuel Miranda. Yeah, um, you've heard of this guy, and I have to say. We uh, we had the pleasure of having Lin Manuel on the Dolby podcast a couple of months ago, talking about Tick Tick Boom, which oh, yeah. is just an extraordinary movie. So good. Uh, and you know, so obviously he's a very accomplished and talented director on his own. Can you talk about working with Lin Manuel, the process of developing the songs, and and how that went for you? Yeah, well, Lin was really uh, just amazing to work with because again, you could feel that he was completely invested from day one, and he um, he did, didn't try to uh micromanage his part of that that uh that team like he was really there and he told us repeatedly like let let he would let us know like what music can do when the moment is right and it's like we you know jared and i we built sort of the early concept of of the film um this idea of the the young girl who was ordinary among an extraordinary family that was a key idea that that really landed 
very early in pitches, before we knew Mirabel's name, before we knew the family was called the Madrigals, before we knew it was in Colombia, we had that dynamic. And everybody really invested in, in uh, that character, that, that unpowered young woman who was trying to figure out how she fits into her family. That, and that was very compelling. And that was compelling to Lynn as well. And so as we started to kind of go, we're committing to a great big family. One of the first things in his head was, how do you introduce those characters in a fun way with a massive amount of information. And that became the family Madrigal song that uh, Mirabel sings at the beginning. It was the first song that he wrote and it was this just crazy avalanche of lyrics that Stephanie Beatrice just nailed. It was incredible to see her perform that, but it was almost a proof of concept for us because we had been told as we are by our peers that we know we, we have a lot of information at the beginning of this film. We have a miracle, we have like butterflies, we have a magic house that's alive. We have 12 different family members. Each of them looks different. They all come from different places. We have different powers, magic doors. There's a lot of stuff to cover in the first 10 minutes of this movie. So Lynn really stepped up and said, well, let me take some of that off your shoulders and let's carry that in that first uh, song. And throughout the whole process, anytime we got to moments in the story that really needed to be expressed in music, like, Mirabel's uh, song, Waiting Out, Waiting on a Miracle, Surface Pressure, uh, Luis's hilarious song, uh, Dos Origuitas, the beautiful ballad that he wrote to um, uh, kind of herald this reveal that Abuela makes to Mirabel about the truth behind their exodus and uh, their, their, their search for a new home and the, the loss of the person that she loved the most in the world and what that did to her 50 years ago. He was so good at knowing when to jump in and make music um, a perfect storytelling tool. And then Bruno, of course, they, uh, we don't talk about Bruno, which just blew our mind how that caught on. He, a, it's a great song. So it's good. Amazing song. That's one of the ones that he wrote in front of us, which was pretty incredible. We would have a call like this over Zoom on Friday nights, you know, it's sort of like touch base with Lynn night. It would be six o'clock our time, nine o'clock his time in New York after he put, put his kids to bed. And we were talking about the Bruno song. And uh, we said, you know, it's kind of be, it's a gossipy song. It's got a lot of cheese in there. It's sort of like, all, you know, he's got this reputation around town about uh, did, did he see dark things or is he causing dark things? And he's been gone from the family for 10 years. So who knows? And everyone's got a different story. And he just looked at us. He said, I think it's like a spooky Montuno and he had the piano and he turned around and he went bum 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 he literally played the first three chords in front of us and then he said like I got it and he disappeared for about a week and then he came back and he was like I'm exhausted have a listen and we listened and it was all 12 different lens singing that beautifully layered song and that's really what you hear in that final version is almost exactly like what he what he put together but yeah that was it's so rare for an ensemble song to really go crazy, you know, into the stratosphere. But that one certainly did. That was a huge, huge, uh, delightful surprise. I'm curious, like you bring up some good points about music is, is super powerful and you have such amazing moments in this film. What was your approach to the mix and balancing out all of these elements? We have uh, an amazing sound team and we have uh, veterans, you know, who have worked with us for many years. You know, Dave Flora I've worked with for many years. Uh, well, also like Shannon, uh, like our sound designer was new for me on this time. And he had worked on uh, Big Hero 6 and I met him for the first time um, on this film. And he was brought to our attention, uh, you know, through our sound department. And they knew he was really good with, with character-y sound. And that was really important for us for Casita, the house, 
is a living, breathing thing. And so finding the sounds of the house and having it emote without a face or arms or legs and stuff, it was a huge challenge for the animators, but also sonically, uh, I was a huge challenge for um, our sound team to figure out what Casita sounded like and also to represent uh, Colombia. This, like when we were down there, um, Jared and I and Lynn four years ago, I woke up one morning at this little uh, hacienda uh, in Armenia um, and I walked outside, it was like five in the morning and I, I, I couldn't believe the sounds around me, the birds and the insects. And I think actually some of the, some of the sound in the movie is from that iPhone. Cause I just, I held up my iPhone. I just recorded a little video and it was just everywhere, but it was so immersive and Colombia is so specific. It's the most, I think most biodiverse country anywhere in, in, in South America. It's just, it's, it was pretty incredible, but getting that specificity, right. And then also our teams knowing how to blend that with uh, complex dialogue and music and uh, Colombian specificity in, uh, in how people speak and the use of, uh, you know, um, Spanish and using crowds and making that, that place feel populated. It was a huge challenge, but everyone was just terrific. This was my first time producing a film. I've been on production and many times. And so usually my job ends when we finish the production side of it. And so really to be alongside and this, you know, to kind of go all the way through posting, see the sound design and really watch Shannon and then uh, the sound designer, Nia Hansen, who he worked with is was such like every time we'd come in and review different and I'm like, Oh my gosh, you realize how much it just continues to build and get better and better with all the amazing sound design that they did. So it was for me personally, it was just a great, like, I was like, I felt like I was a kid at Disneyland. I was like, Oh my gosh, listen to this. And then you get to, so every time we go in for review, I was thrilled and excited about it. Can you talk a little bit about the production design uh, of Encanto? I mean, obviously, La Casa Madrigal is such a fantastic location. Uh, how did that come together? And I noticed, like the, you know, there was there was so much about the color palette and the design sort of evoked emotion for me. Like, uh, like even Mirabelle's room in the nursery, I noticed that was that had a very different color palette and it felt very less magical than the rest of the house. And obviously that's kind of a manifestation of her character as well. So can you talk a little bit about that process? So, uh, you know, we have to give a huge nod to Ian Gooding and Lorelai Bovey, our, our uh, production designers uh, and associate production designer on the film. Um, not only are they amazingly talented artists, but they really love the research part, which is such a huge part of why these, these films resonate um, in a big way. And it's like, it's interesting because I don't know how well Colombia is known around the world, but for uh, a lot of people, this film will be their introduction to Colombia. That's a huge responsibility. That's a lot of trust that our Colombian friends have put on us. So not only do we rely on research trips anytime we could, and that was a little bit limited because of COVID, we would have had more people go down there if we could, but we also established a Colombian cultural, cultural trust, about a dozen people, experts and everything from botany to dance and food and ethnicity that worked with our artists for uh five years really weekly to get all this stuff right so everything from the black chamba pottery that's in the uh in the kitchens to the handmade tiles to the cloth which is different for every single character so that the authenticity was super important in the representation beyond that we also had the storytelling behind the family so you have a dozen people in a house who's related to who whose child is whose child. And like, so the brilliant Lorelai Beauvais, our associate production designer, came up with this color genealogy. So if you look at the cast, you can tell with the warm colors and the cool colors, 
whose side of the family is whose, and that goes into their rooms as well. Like Mirabelle's room, as you said, is simpler and very plain. It's the nursery. It's not magical. It's not a magical room beyond what the house does normally. You know, opening shutters and doors and floorboards, that kind of thing. Uh, but it's not a it's not a special room. It's a, it's a room that's meant to be a transitional space, a move a room for a child to move out of and. We really wanted to get the idea that Mirabelle had outgrown that room and she deserved something bigger and better and more sort of like as something more recognized as part of the family. Like the, even the alphabet on her wall tells you that this is a child's room and she is no longer a child. And she really is looking for a place to to uh, step out of that. Um, but you'll see that those those color motifs throughout the movie, as well as other motifs like the the candle butterflies are a huge motif throughout the film all those the, the yellow butterflies are a nod to gabriel garcia marquez sort of the father of colombian magical realism so that's all the way through the film especially with those sort of guitars, but it's all the way through the house it's in mirabelle's embroidery mirabelle is actually with uh sharice had this amazing idea and talking about like when you're a, a teenager and you kind of draw on your jeans or draw on your PT. You remember PTs? They're like folders. You know, like when you kind of doodle. Uh, Mirabelle is the hugest fan of her family. So her dress that she handmade is really a love letter to her family. So everything on that skirt is about her sisters and her cousin and what she thinks is wonderful about her family. There's the candle in there and her grandmother. So she really wears her emotions on her sleeve literally and that was you know all uh coming from discussions from story and from the writing and from our art department but again people going to the ends of the earth to tell a story in every way possible which is pretty impressive yeah there's so much of our our production design that's it, it all starts with research and really learning you know the world that we're creating and and we had such a, a beautiful uh, base, basing it in Colombia and, and how diverse, you know, we quickly fell in love with how diverse Colombia is. Um, you know, it's in its flora and fauna and its people and its music and just everything is, there's so many different things within the country of Colombia. And so, uh, you know, our artists, they do heavy, heavy research, but as Byron mentioned, we had our Colombian cultural trust and, and really this is, you know, we had our Colombian cultural trust integrated with our artists where they met with them every week. And, and really it was very early on, we had experts come in and, and we had some of the trust come in and talk to our supervisors and talk about Colombia and the history of Colombia and really bringing everyone along the journey. And so what was beautiful for me um, was that as people came onto the show, everybody took up that responsibility. They fell in love with the country and they took up that responsibility to try to represent it as well as possible. What was your approach with a technology like high dynamic range and how did things like Dolby Vision help you visually unlock possibilities? Oh yeah, that HDR has been incredible over the last couple of years. Um, we, we, when we were working on Zootopia HDR, that was one of the first films we did sort of native to HDR. And then later I went back and I did, a, I kind of looked at a version of um, Tangled, which had been updated to HDR. And just the vibrancy and the magic, they like the, these pure, pure whites and just the, the brilliance of the color and the deep blacks. And I think that's why, you know, if I look at Encanto, I think we'll sell a lot of televisions <laughs> because it's, it's, so, it's so pretty, you know, and I think because uh, the idea behind the art direction on the film, very early on, Sharice Castro-Smith said something that became a tent pole, a guidepost for myself and Jared about how this movie should look and feel is that she she said, I think this film should look should look romantic, meaning that 
all the decisions should come from emotion and it, it really does and that that that's goes for character design that goes for what they're wearing that goes for the lighting that goes for the atmosphere in the sky how many clouds and sort of the deep colors but i think the fact that this is a magic uh, story that's inspired by magical realism we wanted it to feel heightened so the colors are deeper and richer the blacks are blacker the the colors in bruno's magic is more intense that candle flame is brighter and that's where this extended dynamic range is really is really key. Like it's unbelievable for me to watch it in HDR and then watch it in standard definition because the difference is so so pronounced, especially with this uh, with this film. So I, I it really takes advantage of that that new um, ability of the uh, high dynamic range. Yeah, and Dolby Vision is the perfect example of that because like seeing something as it was meant to be seen, as we saw it in the studio, as we were making it, and as we hoped people would see it. At home, I think that the quality, the clarity, and just the depth that um, that the, the, that has just blows blows me back in my seat when I see it. Again, seeing everyone's efforts come together and being so beautifully represented, uh, no matter where you view it um, around the world, is, is pretty incredible. Well, it's believe me, it's been our pleasure, and it started with watching your movie, which is just absolutely fantastic. And so, like, I don't know how you guys did it, but every you know, I, I cried yet again. What a wonderful story! Congratulations on an incredibly well-deserved Academy Award nomination. Thank you, Glenn. Well, Thanks, Stuart. <laughs> thank you for having us, and thank you for for this podcast. I think it's great. Many thanks to Byron and Yvette and the whole team behind Encanto. Next up is Luca. Here's our conversation with the film's director, Enrico Casarosa. All right, Enrico, thank you so much for joining us today uh, to talk about Luca and congratulations on your Academy Award nomination. Well-deserved. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm always curious, especially about Pixar films. I know the, the development process is so rigorous there. So can you talk about actually developing the story and figuring out kind of what that was going to be and, and how did it evolve over the over the many years of the development of the film. Yeah, it is quite, quite fascinating. The, 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 there were a few different incarnations of this idea, even before we kind of got the go ahead. You know, when you propose ideas, usually you pitch two or three ideas at, at Pixar. And having done a short, I was kind of like in the back of the, of the class going like, could I pitch some feature ideas? And, and when I did, there, there was the first version of this, of this story was quite different. It was actually more about a father it was more, I was a little more of a father figure in it. And I was thinking about, um, you know, my daughter and the sense of being away from your own culture and having to re-embrace it. And so it was more actually someone who had moved here to the States and was going back to Cinque Terre, back to Liguria and found that his family had this, you know, and so the, the girl was more at the heart of it and found that her grandpa uh, fell in love with, with some secreture of sorts, so that she had this possibility to, she didn't even know it, and she had this possibility to transform. That was the first, really first version of it, and it had this idea more of kind of going to discover your roots and, and really finding out that you have this, you know, of course, magical side to your, your family. And then we realized, well, actually, Maybe it's more interesting to just really be in that world right away. And those were some of the first few notes. And when, when I pitched the idea that then got greenlit for development, it was more about I, I shifted it and gave it kind of the heart of it was my, my best friend and I and this sense of um, growing up 
sheltered and, and timid and, and remembering my best friend being such a kind of a, a passionate troublemaker. And I thought when we started talking about it, everybody got really ex excited and everybody could relate to that. There's so many of us that have had these strong friendships that have helped us find ourselves. And they're always with someone very different from us as somehow that complementarity as chemistry, right? Like that, that we, we, we are trying to figure out who we are and who we're not um, with them. So that's when we started realizing, actually, let's talk about friendship and how friendship is kind of part architect of your own identity. Like it's part of finding yourself. Would we be the same if we not had these amazing uh, friendship? Um, and that is when, you know, we, we, we dug deeper into the, really what the movie ended up being. I'd say that the first version also was much more adventures. There was a whole um, quest side of it, and they were trying to to completely turn themselves into humans. Um, and there was a huge finale where Alberto was turned into a kraken. He kind of went to the dark side, and it was more about Luca trying to calm the, the huge kraken down uh, in the middle of you know very much of a, a, the, the humans and the sea monsters all fighting. And it just felt really off. That 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 just felt like the heart of the movie showed ourself it was the relationship, and there is something so charming about the the, the scenes that we wrote with Alberto and Luca, like this this uh, boisterous, full of you know confidence, but not of course you know um, not really knowing much. There was something so um, charming, and the emotion was coming from that. So we realized that really we needed to focus on that, and that's when we really thought much more about the relationship. We mapped it out carefully. Here's when we're, they're, they're, they meet. Here's when they start really um, helping each other. Here's when they don't help each other anymore because jealousy starts to happen. And um, here's where they're going to knife each other in the back. You know, and so that gave us, uh, and, and we found the ending like a good, I, I think it was already a year and a half in, we realized uh, after I talked to my best friend that one of the big parts was actually we, we had to go our separate ways to grow up. That there's there was even a sense of like that if you only get hang up to friendship, you're not living your full potential. And so that kind of had us thinking we found this goodbye, this bittersweet ending that felt very true. It felt also very true to me leaving Italy so you know so many times I had to, to I experienced what Luca experienced there because you're saying goodbye to your family to your friends but you're also full of joy and, and potential going in toward your your path yeah um so like Luca is told from the point of view of the son Luca chooses to embrace uh adventures and danger and works to evade his parents uh rather than reunite with them in doing so we see Luca grow up in the film um what message do you hope younger audiences and their parents take away from the film when they watch it? Yeah, it was really fascinating writing Daniela, Luca's mom, because it's it's very um, difficult, right, for all of all of us to um, uh, now that I am a parent, right, like to think of that moment where uh, the world is dangerous out there, the world can be unkind out there, and now you know, we have to let our kids take their chances and take some, you know, some um, uh, independent, right? If, if we look at them and nowadays, I think helicopter parenting is so uh, prevalent uh, for many reasons, 
but you know how do we give them the tools to really be in the world um so it really felt uh we wanted to introduce the par- parents are of course are very worried they have very good reasons to be worried right um the world is dangerous especially for these sea monsters who are hiding under the 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 sea and they um they are not seeing him that felt very important um grandma's the only one who sees him a little bit right like she can tell like you maybe need to go and we we kept on saying scrape a fin and you know instead of scrape a knee it was like you, you know she's the one who could say he needed to go and scrape a fin um and uh it, it is a tough journey because it's a tough journey for daniela to really not only see him see that he has talent see that he knows how to look for the right people in the world that will support him and see him as, and 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 be there for him um but also um you know be willing to you know release that that control right it, that's such a vulnerable thing um i must say my parents as i was telling you a little bit my story they were surprisingly wonderful at 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 allowing us to go out there in the world my brother flies planes he's an airline pilot and here i am we're all rather far so there wasn't hanging on and i think that i'm very fortunate with that because again i don't know i'm very fortunate i found an alberto in my world that gave me the the the, the passion and the, the the willfulness to chase my dreams but also parents that they were not um hanging on too hard right so i think it's it's both the journey of having to really you know <laughs> give a prayer and and let go of of your of your kids that have to go out into the world and also you know for her learning about her own prejudice i think you know of course we built this world where the 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 other is really bad and so they call the humans land monsters right it's a, and and of course humans call them sea monsters so the other side of it was having to see that humans are not all bad, you know, and then and that the other is not all bad. Uh, the, the music uh, in Luca is just stunning. Uh, and it's just another wonderful element to this film. Uh, can you talk about the collaboration of working with Dan Romo um, and the balance between score and source music? It seems there were more source music um, in this film. Yeah. Um, then it w- was amazing to work with. I, I'm so in love with the music he wrote for us. He, I think it, it was an interesting challenge we gave him. One, because we knew a movie like this, you know, I was thinking of the um, Stand By Me, uh, 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 right? Like where, where it's a summer movie, it's a kid, there's this, the, the, the radio, the, the needle drop, it's always a part of it. It just places you there, right? On the summer, on on, on the on the beach. And so I knew that that had to be a big part of it. And I knew that there was this, I was listening to so much of fifties and sixties, beautiful Italian songs that I knew would give this wonderful flavor. So he had that existing work to work around and even the opera you can add, right? Cause there was a lot of opera. We wanted to, you know, two or three places where we wanted opera. And he was so, um, amazing at, at working around it and still finding this really difficult thing we asked him because he, he, I bombarded him with inspiration from Italy, Nino Rota, um, Nicola Piovani, um, so many, you know, famous Italian, uh, but, but very scorish um, 
music and I, I wanted him to bring some of that to his music so that he would feel Italian. But then I remember because he, he did a lot of different demos and sometimes he would just become Italian and it wouldn't be Dan anymore. So I remember, I don't know, but don't lose you because I love your music. And, you know, uh, Beast of the Southern Wild is something that he, he scored that I absolutely loved. And he, he captured something about childhood. It's something about like uh, child uh, adventures, kids' adventures, right? And so I, I think he totally hit it. it, it you know, we we really found that middle where, where it supported the emotion. It felt uh, Italian when, in, you know, in, in moments where it needed to and others just let let the, the emotion soar. Um, yeah, I, I am very much in love with all he wrote for that. And I remember in the first batch he sent, there was immediately Luca's theme. And I remember out of three or four, it was just something of like, that feels Luca like to me. And it's the main Luca theme. And he says, that's the first thing I wrote once you show after we met. So it was, I, I love that there was an instinct that he found this kind of curiosity and, and very, um, I think the Luca team has a, an aching for something, you know, like a, a wish for, for more in it. I think that I, I really love. Um, yeah, I, I, um, you know, I just noticed it got nominated by the composers awards among best movies, which I'm so glad because I think, um, it's, it's a pretty amazing score he did for us. It carries so much emotion. Thinking about those sequences, you know, what were the possibilities that were unlocked for you with Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos? Because the movie is just stunning in Vision, and it sounds great in Atmos. So, how how what excited you about having those tools as a storyteller? Yeah, it goes back to this wonderful sense of contrast, and 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 you know, the depth of the tools now gets like you know tenfold. Uh, you can go to a scene like our big um, heartfelt um, apology from Luca, which happens actually not far from the big betrayal, where it's really dark. It's now we're on top of a tower, we're inside a tower, and we're like, let's allow this to be nice and dark. This is really, uh, the colors are, are more muted. You know, you could really know that that would be well taken care of. It. We could be darker than maybe we've been um that that gives you really the ability to know that now you have this extra volume on on all the 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 levels um visually and sound um and and, and as you know as immersive because again it goes back to how what's wonderful about cg animation and the technology nowadays is i think it takes you there you're a little more immersed in it um, that was something that as much as we wanted to stylize some things, I was always very, um, caring about. And I know, you know, there's nothing that can put you in the middle of this world, like amazing sound and amazing image. Uh, so I was really excited ab about just knowing that, that you would have all these extra levels and of subtlety and, and of, uh, quantity and of, of strength. So those are, you know, the scenes you're pointing at are perfect. Yeah, because it's like we could punch the saturation to a level that we were like, there's no nothing left. I think there's a little bit left to go even more saturated or moments of darkness or moments, you know, like another another part I absolutely love about the sunset, the dramatic sunset betrayal scene is that we could also bring not only the, the oranges and the, the yellows, but now toward the end of the scene, 
there's also this purples and blues because actually the sun is so low and there's this wonderful sense of this shadow coming over even Luca and Julia who have, you know, he's the guy who's really screwed up now in this moment. Um, so the, though the, the depth of those colors, the brilliance of those colors, are, um, it's just so exciting to know that you can hit it in, in such a, a brilliant way. And sound, you know, that's another part that is really exciting, again, because you can really surround it. But I, you know, for me, from day one, sound was this, uh, it was this kind of traveling back to my memories. There, I remember um, it took us forever to find the right swallows that uh, uh, that we have there for three seconds, but they're real swallows for Italy. And there's a certain crying that they do when they're flying around and, and, and eating. In, in late at night, kind of in the evening. And, or, uh, so it was really authenticity and the subtlety of it, or a, a wave, a wave sound. The waves in Liguria are very, very specific because there's big rocks. So it's not a sandy, uh, splashy uh, wave. We wanted a little bit of the sense of these uh, pebbles that get rounded off and beat up by the waves that would be in it. So, I always um, thought that the, the specifics, you know, of course I had them in my head, but I think it was also, I wanted someone, I wanted the grandma from Genova to kind of go like, oh, that's the right pasta. Uh, and that's the right sounds. Oh my God, it's going to take me back to maybe I haven't been. So I knew that that needed the highest quality of, of, of you know, kind of um, experience and it's, by by this you know many of the stories we heard from Italian Americans or from Italians have been really wonderful to kind of for people to say like oh wow that feel felt really like I was there because so we knew we had to treat that very you know with, with with a lot of love. Well, that's fantastic, Enrico. Thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us about Luca. It's really a, it's a great film and congratulations on your really incredibly well-deserved Academy Award nomination. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, it was really fun to chat. Thanks, and thanks so much for, for you know, taking care of this movie uh, on these amazing, beautiful uh, screens. Many thanks to Enrico and the whole team behind Luca. Next up is The Mitchells versus The Machines. Joining us is the film's co-writer and director, Mike Rianda, as well as the producers of the film, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. So, Mike, I know you developed this story kind of based on your own experiences with your family. There's a lot of autobiographical stuff in this. And, and also, you seem to be exploring some, some really powerful themes of, of humans' relationship with technology. What, tell us, what, are you kind of, what did you set out to express with the film? And I'm curious, did you, did you learn anything interesting about yourself through the process of making it? It was sort of tricky because it's a, I, I wanted to be really sort of really subtle with the themes but but you know ultimately it's 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 about it's it's about a couple of things especially if a movie's this long you know you you know you make it over the course of this many years and stuff you sort of learn and grow as you're going but one of the first ones was sort of just that family is one of the most important things in the world and our relationships are what make us human and you can always make you can always strengthen those relationships with effort um i'm i'm a big believer in trying very hard. <laughs> I'm a try hard at heart. Um, and, and I do think that, um, so that was one thing. And another thing, you know, it's just that it's, it's so easy to sort of demonize technology and in many ways it should be demonized. You know, I'm looking at you, Elon Musk <laughs> or whatever, but, um, 
but like, uh, but I do think that that it's also providing so many amazing things. Like we're talking right now on a Zoom link. You know, during the pandemic, I couldn't talk to my parents. You know, without a computer, I I learned about animation, and I I learned that that was even a thing I could do through you know meeting people online and stalking cartoonists on ICQ, um, which is a is a reference only four percent of the population will get. But um, but uh, and and so yeah, so technology can bring us all these things. But but basically, you have to figure out a way to use the technology to uh, reveal your humanity and have it connect you to each other, as opposed to using it as a blockade um, from from your humanity and using it to separate yourself from others. At, at the end of the day, these things are tools. You know, we make these movies with a lot of um, computing power, but a computer is no different than um, a paintbrush or a pencil. You know, it's a tool that's meant to magnify like the minute human movements of your wrist and your fingers and make them visible to everybody. So we always try to remember that when we're, we're making a movie using all this stuff that it's meant to amplify our humanity, not, not flatten it. You bring up a good point now, like um, about tools and then also the visual style of this movie. Uh, it's really striking. Uh, you have amazing contrast to like the Lego movie or even Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Um, but here you seem to be blending 2D and 3D as well as utilizing vintage videos to give even more visual flavor. Um, can you talk to us about developing that visual style of the film? And did you have to develop any new tools uh, for this particular feature? You know, when we talked to Mike uh, about what he wanted the movie to look like, um, you know, we knew that we were inheriting the Spider-Verse crew and that they could do anything they wanted to do. And, and you know, as you know, you know, CG animations evolution came out of VFX. So it became really good at making things look really realistic and having uh, every hair on someone's head look real and the water and the leaves on the trees look super realistic. And, um, and that wasn't uh, what was most interesting to us. What's interesting to us is uh, using it as Phil was saying, as a tool to, um, to see the artist's hand. And because this is a, a tool you can make look like anything you want it to it's really the limits are only your imagination and so we had all these artists who were so excited they turned all that stuff into looking like you're inside of a comic book we were like well what is what is this movie going to look like and mike had a really strong vision of what he wanted to look like which was that he wanted to feel like it was a watercolor illustration that all the human world stuff would feel very observed that it would feel very kind of lumpy and irregular and it would, you could really feel like it was like a, like a 2d drawing come to life in a, in a watercolor painting and that would contrast with the world of PAL and the machines and the sort of perfection that, that is there. And that was a great opening philosophy. And then on top of that, we had Katie Mitchell as our protagonist, a 17-year-old filmmaker who's narrating the story and has this crazy mixed media film style. And so bringing her personality into it and adding her style on top of it as though she were editing the movie and drawing on top of it herself just helped make it even more personal, more human, more inside the mind of a 17-year-old film student. And all that stuff together was really hard to get the computer to paint like a watercolor. <laughs> and so we had to develop a bunch of new tools. I say we very loosely. I don't write the code personally. <laughs> but we, we sort of knew what we wanted it to look like. And then just to get it to happen took a lot of R&D and a lot of you know breaking of things that used to be made. Uh, but the end result was something that doesn't look like anything else, and it feels like its own its own thing. And I think that's what's great about animation is that 
every film should be uh, distinct from one another. It's just as like every painting you see in, a, in an art museum, you're like, look at this pointillist painting or this Van Gogh or whatever. They all have their own style and anything you want. Uh, or or this be- Goya is different right. than El Greco, right? Those are two right. different interpretations often of the same events. You know, and it's interesting just that, Chris, you said that, that, you know, the only limit is your imagination. And on top of that, we have to we all work really hard not to be limited by our imaginations, but rather to find ways to, like, discover things and push out the boundaries of what we can imagine when we start the picture by collaborating with other people. And they are going to give us an idea. And together we're going to trip over something and that's going to, like, grow what we imagine a movie can look like. And this making this film was was an epically long process of expanding what we thought a movie could be. I wanted to ask you about the production design, uh, just and the look and feel of the spaces. You know, obviously, I, I love Chris what you were talking about about contrasting the world of the the Mitchells, which is very lumpy and irregular, with the PAL headquarters and that technology. I mean, I, I I was just loving the look of the of the PAL headquarters, all that stuff. It sort of felt like a distinctive kind of '80s graphics vibe, and I think even one of the characters refers to it at one point as looking like a Journey album, which just made me laugh out loud. <laughs> but can you talk a little bit? About about like what was your guiding principle behind the look and the development of that technology of that the technological world? Well, Lin- <clears throat> Lindsay Oliveros, who's our production designer, did an amazing job, and she she was sort of one of the people who spearheaded. You know, sort of we wrote this like goofy manifesto before we started the movie, and one of the things is that the places should look real. So it's like you know, this hotel room that I'm in has a bunch of junk on it, and already know, to try to. <laughs> I know, I just got here. Um, and we wanted to try to sort of have that in the human world. So on the so when we put that up on the wall and we got excited about those illustrations, we wanted to see like, okay, what is the exact opposite of that? And it was like, and one of our production, one of our great artists found like these James Terrell installations and Olafur Ilyasson and these like, he was, he's cooler than us. And he's like, check out this installation there. Um, and, and we sort of like combine that with like, you know, sort of the, the language of tech apps you know, which are like very bright and very colorful and very simple, you know, and and tried to say, okay, what if you took away all the curves and all the squiggles, you know, and it was just straight 2001 Space Odyssey, you know, um, like every shot is symmetrical. And and so we were, we we got really excited about the contrast between those two things. And also just, you know, thematically too, it's like the these robots are sort of perfect but those spaces are cold and sad you know um and and whereas like a a sort of more human space might be more messy but it's also like warm and inviting a little bit in its messiness um so we were trying to sort of contrast those two things and and the and the 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 art team did an amazing job um it's always fascinating for us to hear as well how people collaborate and obviously this is a a very personal story from mike so phil and chris how did you see uh, your roles in developing and producing the film, and how did the three of you find your rhythm? We're just trying to amplify what Mike had started and what um, his crew had had you know developed with him, and just trying to make sure, in part, that if you're going to make a manifesto to make a movie that is you know um, something that no one has seen before, to like make sure that we support that and hold him to it. And sometimes there were moments when, you know, it would have been convenient to shave the edges off of that because there is a lot of pressure on a first time filmmaker to be reasonable. Right. And uh, 
make it easier to produce and make it easier for um, the film to fit into the pre-existing pipelines and software. And we got to the fun job of saying like, sorry, <laughs> there's nothing reasonable about making movies. That nobody walked out of a movie and said, gosh, I love that movie. It was so reasonable. And the, it seems like the people who made it were great at compromising. Uh, and they, they probably came on in under budget, which is my favorite part of it. So, you know, you want, <laughs> um, and so we were help, uh, able to do that. And, um, and we were, we were really happy to be, to be invited to the party and be able to, um, help Mike. Yeah. We also was sort of like a blocking and tackling a little bit and making sure they had the room to push it as far as they wanted to go and to encourage them to go farther, uh, on a visual level. It was vouching for the movie we promised the studio that it would be good and that we would we were staking our reputations on it with them so they were more comfortable um and they were more comfortable letting mike go farther and then there was a lot of time in the edit bay with mike and uh, hanging out and working on the scenes and you know pitching ways to make them more interesting or more emotional or funnier or just not expected and working every moment uh and it was a great collaboration because Mike is as crazy and passionate uh, as his manifesto was. And he was really open uh, and excited to do whatever it took to make the movie better. And he was also, you know, fiercely protective of his crew and, and passionately a great cheerleader for them and all the ideas that they were bringing. And so it was a really, it was a really, really positive collaboration. And just, and just from my end too, I mean, really truly these guys were my heroes and it was like such a they were like can we help make your movie better it's like yeah dog get in there um uh and and but you know the thing that was interesting to me is i thought i was the craziest cartoon person you could be i was like no one can love cartoons more than me or hold them to a higher standard and they're like get ready (laughs) um and it was so cool because it was like the thing that i noticed is that every single decision Every cut, every line, every sound effect, every look at, you know, what they would question and be like, okay, could this be better, more surprising, more interesting, whatever. And one example I I actually just gave, which I I already have the drawings for, is there was this, there was a bomb USB in the movie. um, And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, the bomb will help, uh, you know, Katie will draw a little bomb on there and help uh, the audience remember that it's a bomb. Great. Done. And it was like late in the movie. And and I remember Chris and Phil were like, could that bomb be more interesting? And I'm like, guys, there's so many, so many other things to do. I don't, I, I think we're good. And then I'm like, no, 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 well, let's, let's think about it. And then, and then sort of one of them drew this and like, I was like, God damn it, that is better. You know? And, and when you watch the movie, it's like, just imagine that happening times a thousand, you know, just all these moments where it's like, could this be better? Could this be better? And then we come up with, you know, that one, that was an easy one. You know, but oftentimes it's just like this scene is lacking. Let's attack it 15 different ways, you know. And then we do like three different versions of the scene. We look at them all and then we try to sort of see which ones are, you know, which ones ends up being the best. And and it's really rigorous and, and intense, but it also it made the movie so much better. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, your uh, I'm just curious to hear stories from your voice recording sessions because your cast is so unbelievable. And there's so many hilarious moments like the, you know, 
Conan O'Brien and the, the flight attendant, the, like that's a harmful stereotype <laughs> line. I was just laughing all the way through here. So like was how much of that stuff was improv with that amazing cast that you had? Because we know they're all very strong comedy players. Um, you know, how much of it was your scripting genius before you got into those recording <laughs> sessions and kind of like, it was all that. It was all that. Next question. No, um, <laughs> no. Um, it, it, I mean, it was it was a real collaboration, and that was another thing these guys helped me on. I, I was sort of used to this TV style, of like get it quick and keep and keep moving. And they were like, no, no, no. Let the you know. It was the same thing that we did with the artists. You know, I was really familiar with working with working with visual artists and being like, okay, get, give us all your ideas and and getting all of the creativity that they had to give but sometimes i was sort of with actors i was like oh their time is valuable and blah 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 maybe i shouldn't bother them but they they just like the artists are like love to play around and and come up with new things and one thing that we came up with in the room with like danny mcbride was you know that staring contest that he has in the beginning of the movie um that was like just a radio play of stuff danny was saying in the room while we were like throwing suggestions at him and he's like there you go Mox, look at that that's a spirit you know, or whatever, like, and like that, and one of our editors like cut those, just that radio play together over black, um, in the, in an edit. And it like, it played really funny and, and, you know, and, and these guys were always encouraging us to sort of find, you know, just like we were doing with the art and making it more human by having all the imperfections do the same thing with the voices. You know, um, it's just another thing that could make the movie more unique and, and feel more and, real. And I'd say that it, that goes for every part of the process. So there's a script and the script is funny. And then a story artist, um, you know, we have a great head of story. Uh, Guillermo, he would like, you know, he would generate an idea that would make Mike and Jeff think about something else. Then we would look at it and edit. We're talking in the room and going, what about this? Mike is laying down scratch track literally right there in a microphone. And then he's like riffing on an idea. And then, you know, we had a very patient editor who was excited to like find the best stuff. And then you take that into with the actors. And so it's, it's you know, you're calling it improvising, but it's really just like creating. I just wanted to get your, get a, a sense from all of you. You know, our industry obviously is, is undergoing pretty seismic upheaval right now with the pivot to streaming and, you know, lack of certainty about what's happening in the, in the theatrical world. And I, I'm just curious to get your sense on what you think about film school and, and the ways to get into the industry. Cause we often, uh, you know, we have a pretty big, a pretty big portion of our audience on the Build a Podcast is students and aspiring filmmakers uh, who are often asking us like, how do we get into the business and how do we, I'm, I'm curious about your sense of like how to form an attack plan in a time of such upheaval in our business. Well, two things are really exciting. One is that schools like CalArts, there are more of them than ever, and they are more um, inclusive than ever. And if you, you know, if I'm not wrong, I believe, you know, um, when Chris and I moved to town, you know, CalArts, like the incoming classes were like largely male and, this, you know, and they were not that diverse. And now they're, I think, majority female. The other thing that's really exciting is people on our crew, some of them are learning on YouTube and they're good. <laughs> and so the exciting thing about this moment, as scary as it is, um, it's also really democratizing the access. I don't think there's like a, well, I don't think there's like a one size fits all path to making it in the industry. Film school may be the way to go for you. Maybe, um, uh, starting something totally different uh, is the way to go. Or, 
you know, teaching yourself stuff. But I do think that uh, one thing that I think is is great to do is just make things, make films and make films that you want to see, not films that you think will get you noticed by people or will be appreciated by people or you think that people want to see. It's the movie or the short film or the idea that you're like, oh, that's cool. I want to see that. And it's, and it's an, in a way that only you would do because that's, uh, that's how you get noticed and that's how um, things start to happen for you. And, and, and when you make things, you learn and you start out like Katie Mitchell where you don't know how to pull a mat and it sometimes looks a little janky and you make a bunch of mistakes and then you're really embarrassed about it and you never want to watch it again. But then your next film, you know, you learn some of those tricks and now, uh, and, and you're even better. And, uh, and so I think that really that's the best way to make it. And, and there's a bunch of different routes to get there, but that all involves making things. Yeah, I, I, to- I totally agree. Cause the best thing about CalArts is they make you, is they force you to make four films. And over those four films, you fail so hard so often, you know? And in this movie, we failed so hard so often. Like the reason why anyone likes this movie is because we failed privately 738 times. And then we showed the good version of the movie after all that was done, you know? Like it's, it's, you know, and, and also if you're out there listening, it was terrifying making this movie. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just think that when you're making something, don't be dispirited if it's hard um, or if it sucks, you know, just do another version, make it better or do a new film. Forget about that one and, and make better. I, I sort of described it in a very morbid way, but it's like you, you basically, you know, there's a gap between where you are and where you want to be. And you just have to fill that gap with the corpses of your family. <laughs> that is really funny. I mean, there's a walk along that bridge. There's a famous uh, like line from um, Chuck Jones that he said that his his teacher at CalArts, which was then called Chenard, was said, "You all have ten thousand bad drawings inside of you, and you better start getting them out now." <laughs> which I think is like a, it's also it was a bit dark, but the idea is, you know you need to, you need the pencil miles and there's no shame in uh, making mistakes. And I think one of the things I love about uh, the movie that Mike made is that Katie Mitchell's art and her films, right? She's like exuberant and willful and she's not constrained by anything like taste or worrying about how it's going to play right? She's just making it. And that stuff is on screen, the same screen as all of these like amazing pixels that are made by like people that are like the top of their field, veterans who've been doing it forever and are amazingly skilled. And I love that those things are in the same place and they are elevated to the same level because they belong together. Katie's every emerging filmmaker, your work belongs on that screen. Like that movie is welcoming that. And I think all of us here wasted too much time worrying about whether we deserved to be there or deserved to try or deserved to make movies. And we should have, when we should have just been doing it. Well said, Mike, I love, I love, I love uh, walking on the corpses of all your failures. I think that's a, that's a brilliant, <laughs> brilliant metaphor. We, we surfed. We surfed on those corpses into, into you know, yeah. on the Netflix. 
Um, I got a question for you guys with regards to, obviously you had to create tools, technology changes um, while you're making, um, while you're making movies. Um, how do you feel about technologies like immersive technologies like sound with Dolby Atmos and then even high dynamic range uh, for things like Dolby Vision? How do they help you? Well, I think people often forget that uh, the sound experience is half of your experience going into the movie, right? People are like, oh, you're going to see a movie, but you're, you're going to hear the movie too. And it is so important. It tells you what's important. It tells you where to focus. It makes you feel the things so deeply. And so we're very, um, you know, we love to use the whole room and the space of the whole room. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, we got to work with some of our favorite uh, mixers on, on this film again, um, like Michael Semanic, uh, and who's really great at, uh, at all of that stuff. The high dynamic range. He's always really good at telling us story. Yeah all the time and we paid for the last two weeks of the mix i think we ourselves because <laughs> we were like it doesn't sound good enough one of the several pay cuts we took to work on this movie <laughs> which we did with great pleasure um because it's all about the product and one of the things that um, that atmos can do and a great mix can do is it can make your your soundtrack subjective so that there are sections of the movie where you only hear what katie can hear and you only really you, you you only can hear what Katie's listening to, or what she's paying attention to. And likewise, you'll go and be with Rick, and the, there'll be so much sound that he's overwhelmed, and it'll be coming at him from every possible angle, right? And those dynamics that uh, you get to experience in a in a great auditorium or a great home sound system, those things are there to be expressive. They're not there to like show off and be like, look, there's sound coming out of 50 speakers all at once. Isn't that great? <laughs> and similarly with the high dynamic range, you know, it, it, it gives you, um, it's just a tool and it just, it, it gives you a, a, a wider palette to play with, especially in the dark. Like we have a scene in, in the movie where Rick is watching old videos uh, at the beginning and before the TV comes on, it is, very, very dark in a way that most animated movies just don't do. And, you know, when you have, um, you know, a lot of room in the blacks and in the darks to have subtle gradations in there, you can, you can still see what's happening. You're not confused, but it gives you a feeling and an emotion that you can't get when everything is just crushed into sort of a, a boring gray. <laughs> um, um, now it's also a tool that can be, you know, can be misused right? Just like technology itself, you know, like there's a lot of things that, you know, you want, sometimes you want a filmic look, things get blown out, but in the high dynamic range, suddenly you can see all that stuff in the brights and there's information there that you don't want to see. So you sometimes have to like put limiters on it uh, if you were going for a specific look or idea. And there's a lot of like, you know, again, like the old uh, video effects that we were, were doing on some of those old films that you wanted to sort of just have it get blown out into, into, into nothing. But it's great to have the capability uh, to use like the, the darks and the lights and all everywhere in between if you want them, and you just have to um, you just have to be smart about it. Gentlemen, thank you. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you about this film. Congratulations on your incredibly well-deserved Academy Award nomination, and you know, good luck at a couple of weeks at the at the Dolby Theater. Why? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, nice, nice plug for the Dolby. Thank you very much, guys. 
Many thanks to Mike, Phil, Chris, and the whole team behind the Mitchells vs. the Machines. Next up is Raya and the Last Dragon. We got a chance to speak recently with the film's director, Carlos Lopez Estrada, and producer Osnat Schurer about the film. Carlos, Osnat, thank you for joining us to talk about Raya and the Last Dragon. Carlos, this is your first animated feature. And of course, you know, my audience on the Dolby podcast knows you well. You've been on this show before talking about, most recently talking about Summertime, which could not be a more different movie than Raya and the Last Dragon. Um, and of course, uh, I got to know you uh, when we uh, got to collaborate with you on, on Blind Spotting. So this is your first time doing feature animation. And I'm just kind of curious, you talked a little bit about how you got involved in it, but how did you adjust to working in animation? And obviously, this is a much bigger scale project than than the other movies that you've directed as well. Yeah, I mean, everything about this was was new and and exciting, but also challenging. Uh, scale wise, the amount of people that work on this, the the process that Disney Animation has for putting their stories together is so specific and. It was easy because I had people like Don, I had people like Osna, I had people like like Jen Lee, who who I think first of all like really trusted me to do this, and then were were really helpful in in showing me the ropes. Because yeah, there's so much that I I didn't know, um, and I remember when we started working on it, I I sat with Don in in my office, and I was just like, hey, look, I this is an incredible opportunity. I, I, I'm so happy to be doing it, but I will only do it if you like formally take on the role of my mentor, because I, I can't pretend that I know how to do some things that I just obviously don't know how to do. Um, I, I know how to put a movie together. I think I understand the, the concepts of directing I imagine are going to translate well, but there's, you know, so much that, that I will need patience and, and help with and and he told me that day like you know I fully on board and like I, I got your back and and I, I think that, that was just the the start of of the process uh then there was a lot of adjustment and there was a lot of learning and there was a lot of of um because also Disney animation is so collaborative I think that it's it's easy to to find your way in in the in the movie making process here, um, because you really are like every day sitting in rooms with you know at least five six people, and uh, you're always you're always building off of each other's idea. It's 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 not as lonely as sometimes directing independent movies is, where you either you have the answer or you don't. Uh, here you can you can find it and you can try stuff and you can be wrong and you can sometimes let someone else take the lead and then jump back onto it. So that there was a lot of that that I think um, that I think was really helpful and and just generally people at Disney Animation I think like welcomed me very warmly. So it's 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 been a nice experience. Uh, you, you mentioned Dawn, uh, who's obviously a legend in in the animation world. Um, how did you work together in the process and what were you able to learn from him during your time on Raya? Uh, so much. I mean, he has, he has been at Disney for so, so long. Uh, he is an incredible story artist. He's an incredible, um, 
artist himself like he you know draws and designs and he's been directing for so long and i think he's gone through so many different experiences that that it, it was it was hard to not learn from him just because being in close proximity um there was just so so much that every day it felt like uh it felt like going back to school to some extent where you're like just surrounded by the best teachers and the best artists um so i think more than anything it was just he he's very structured he's very creative um and i think because you know the 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 timing in Raya, we production-wise, we had to move really fast on on things. We had to make make like really big decisions really quickly, and had had to act on our feet. And I think just seeing how, um, and it wasn't just Don, but just speaking specifically about Don, uh, how quickly he was to make decisions and to sort of like like be decisive while, while still letting room for, you know, collaboration. I, it was kind of, it was kind of incredible to watch. And I, I think that I learned more than I would have ever learned just because uh, things in Raya were so, so drastic and they moved so, so fast. I'm always fascinated by the development process uh, for the story and animated films. Austin, can you tell us a, bit, a little bit about the development process on Raya and what, what did the, what did the story start off being and how did it evolve over time? There was a project kind of kicking around the studio that we all loved so much. And it had this idea of these five disparate, very separate lands around the dragon river, the dragon itself being an Asian dragon, a dragon who, uh, you know, doesn't without wings and doesn't, doesn't breathe fire. It's a dragon is about life and water. They're, they're, they're water elementals. Um, and, of a really powerful, real badass, if I may say so, um, female protagonist, real strong, and a kind of, we were going sort of a little bit in the direction of a Western at the time, but it felt like we could really tell a powerful story. And we started talking about, as a team, as a tiny team, what's really important to us? Like what, what feels really important to talk about right now? And it's no secret that this country in particular, but all over the world, we've been experiencing such divisions and such, especially in the last, you know, five years. And this feeling like we can't even meet, like we don't know how to meet and talk. We don't know how to get together and protect ourselves or, or make the world better, but even protect ourselves from anything. How do, what do we want to say about that? And why is that important? And how do you solve it? What is the way? that you, you get across the divide. What does it take and from whom? And so it's something that we went deeper and deeper on. We knew it was the Asian dragon and we went on um, a first research trip, a whole team went on a research trip to Southeast Asia and discovered it in addition to the insane beauty and, and richness of the culture and the fabrics and the food and that, you know, this, the, it's an amalgam of cultures that come together to make something greater than themselves without losing any part of themselves. Just like the street food. There's all these flavors that shouldn't go together and they taste amazing. And so, and the sense of we, this kind of willingness to work with differences, go beyond them and make something together in multiple cultures. Of course, Southeast Asia is 
wide, wide region, 650 million people, multiple hundreds of languages and cultures, but underlying it, a kind of a shared sense of responsibility for each other, of willingness to collaborate, of hospitality, of belief in family, both the family you have and the family you make. So we came back and decided that's it. Southeast Asia, we, we're in love. And um, we're lucky enough at that point also to accrue amazing writers. And our, 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 both our writers are, are Southeast Asian. Our head of story, Fawn Versenthorn, Southeast Asian. A whole um, kind of um, a coming together of something that started telling us where the story wants to go. The development process itself, like Carlos said, it can get really painful. You work really hard to solve a problem and then you show it to your peers in a screening and they're like, eh, I don't know why, whatever. What was Moana was, I don't know why she leaves the island. Really? <laughs> We've been working for months on this. What do you mean it's not clear? And yet we're lucky enough to have that process from peers and from really smart people. So we dig deeper and deeper and deeper. And there was this wonderful moment where, when Carlos and Don and Kui, one of our one of our two writers joined the show and we, we were really pushing at, what is this? What does it take? And arrived at the idea of trust, that there's, there's, there is a, an act of faith, an act of trust that it requires to go beyond the divides that we've created amongst ourselves. And that became the kind of, hmm, maybe the clothesline that we're hanging the story off of. And in this case too, you know, there's there's Raya, there's Namari, there's Sisu, there's uh, three powerful female lead characters and um, getting to, to really play with that, to work with, well, what, what would martial arts look like from a character like Raya as opposed to a character like Namari, who's, you know, more about strength and elbows and knees. And so every detail in our world that continues through the development and production process and honestly continues even now as Raya is showing up in the, in the park as a walk around character. We're still in those conversations, making sure it's, um, as true to the inspirations both the cultural ones and the, the the thematics, the things that we really, really care about. And it, it was amazing for us how life and art started to sort of blend the way we ended up making this film. It was all one big act of trust among 450 of our closest friends that created a movie we're so proud of. Can you talk a little bit about the development of the visual style and the look of the film? There's so many just moments that I found so delightful in the film, I'm thinking about like just the character of Tuk Tuk and uh, the toot and boom insects. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> and even like the, the drone are, they're so terrifying. Um, and, and there's that wonderful moment, like when Raya, when the uh, Sisu starts to, to leap on the rain, like there's so many wonderful visual elements. I mean, can you talk a little bit about putting together the, just the style of this, of the storytelling? Well, these are really the result of, of, of lots of research, lots of time, lots of iterations, lots of incredible artists uh, sharing their visions, all in service of the story. Like it, it really all starts with with us meeting in a room and talking about what the story needs. We're trying to communicate this idea of trust. We're trying to figure out how Raya is going to bring these people together. Like it, it's all in service of that. And then once there's an idea, like we know we need. Um, 
this antagonistic force that is is not is not gonna have a, a, a body and be sort of like fully sentient and like we we have the the brief of what it is that we're after and then we essentially start bringing in our artists to start ideating on them and it goes through so many different versions like some in 2d some in cg some just illustrations they start doing effects tests it, it, it's really and some of these processes like i think osna can probably give you a lot more of a history in some of them because she was one of the first people ever involved with Raya before even Don and I joined. So some of these characters, some of these moments, like really go back, I don't know, five years into development. Um, and and I mean, it, it's hard. That's why, like in in Disney and animated movies, like whenever someone asks, like, "Oh, who's responsible for like that one character?" It's I think not very often will, will you be able to trace it back to like that person. It really, it's, it's years and years of conversations, different iterations, different artists, different minds, all coming together and trying to be, build on top of each other. So yeah, I don't know Austin, if there's, there's, and I know that there, yeah, it goes back to the, the research trips that our artists took and it, it goes like way, way, way back. We, we're, we're kind of geek out, right? So we get into these five lands and we, we worked with um, Southeast Asian cultural anthropologists and others and architects to help us figure out what are the design principles, principles such as um, the shapes um, of your buildings are often a reflection of your worldview. It's not how we build here exactly. So, for example, if you go to the land of heart and they're still close to the dragon and the dragon is water, everything is round, like when a drop hits the water, everything has blues. And so we're thinking about the sociology, the psychology of the characters in that land. Then how high up is it if we're in spine? Well, all right, it's giant bamboo. How do you create something with those same principles from an area that, by the way, is mostly tropical and translate it into this world. What would they have had? What, what, how does it work for the character? What are the colors? We wanted to differentiate each land with colors, colors that are born of who they are. Are you trying to stand out like a merchant in Talon? We're in the purples and oranges and all those beautiful bright colors. Of course, Southeast Asia, the fabrics and the textures and the prints and all of that. So all of that comes together some of it research, some of it inspiration, some of it's just somebody in the comes into the room going like, oh my goodness, I had this this thought, what if she can ride this kind of thing that's like a pill bug, but it's big, but it's this, but it's that. How are we going to do this? And, we, and when we send off an artist to go do something, we'll fall in love. But we like it and it's all good. And then one day, way later, Don's like, ooh, what if he was a baby right at the beginning? And suddenly we have the cutest thing we've ever thought of. So it evolves with everyone with three production designers as, as they like to say, we designed five movies because each land is that different plus the river. And in the characters too, it's important to us that Raya is a martial artist. She should look like a martial artist. She should move like a martial artist. Same with Namari. Um, Sisu, the dragon, is based, is, is inspired by the dragon and the naga of Southeast Asia and their water elementals and they are sacred. So in the design of Sisu, while we wanted her to serve the story that we were creating, we worked really closely with our cultural anthropologists and with others to make sure we're respecting the things that are important in the dragon. 
her colors, the fact that her crest, the horn, is always going to be the highest in the frame because it's the most sacred. All those things were things we think about deeply and design and and design again. And um, it's I think it's a tribute to to our artists, the Droon. We could never draw. You could never capture the idea of the drone on paper. So we're drawing and drawing and we're, we're all trusting because FX is near the end of the line in our production and we're hoping and we know we have all the best people on the show. And uh, one of the co-directors, Paul Briggs, did this painting that was close. That was like, oh, oh, we see something here. And literally we just waited for effects, our effects artists to start first in 2D so that we could do a kind of a test to see. It always helps us to understand and then it wasn't just effects because it was also lighting and they've got water boiling backwards and they've got they've got all these things that they put in it in order to create that feeling we look at it and the directors may go mm, it needs to be clearer that when a drone turns someone to stone they become two because this is all they're trying to do like a virus they're just there to multiply right so we start working a little bit more on shape, but we don't want a face. We don't want them sentient. We want them to feel like something that threatens everyone and just wants to be alive. This is before the pandemic, I need to point out. This is how we, we, we thought of them at the time. So each thing sort of develops on its own, but then someone will come to the table. Uh, our our um, head of environments, the CG environments comes to the table and you know what? So I'm thinking if there's headwaters to the river here and it's going all the way down there, and we're gonna go from blue all the way to a deep dark green, those kinds of things that only we know about, but you kind of feel them, you feel the weight, you feel the something's worn, you, that. So it's a, it's a long, long process, but it's probably one of the most fun parts of making these movies is watching what these artists come up with. I want to ask you about the final battle sequence, uh, Carlos. You were talking about size and scale, and 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 having you know a lot of characters in and a, and big sequences, and and I was just really fascinated by the final battle sequence and kind of the the challenges that you faced in putting that together because you know obviously it's the climax of the movie and it's a big huge battle, but at the same time you've also been talking you've both been talking about kind of the essential theme of the film, which is trust. And of course, Raya has been trust, like every time she has trusted through this movie up to this point, she's gotten double crossed, right? And so she's really taken this huge leap of faith with Namara at the end and sacrifices herself and has turned to stone in this hope that it's all going to turn out right. So it's such an intimate moment, but yet it's happening in this huge scale, cacophonous, massive battle sequence. So I just, I'm, I'm in love with that scene and how it plays out in both of those scales. And so can you talk about how you were able to pull that off and make it work so wonderfully in, in the very end of the film? Yeah, we were just talking about it earlier today and, and someone was asking us what was the hardest, the hardest thing about the movie. And, and yeah, there were, there were many challenges, uh, COVID being one of them, but but on 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 just on, from a filmmaker um, side of things, it I think it was that ending scene, and it, it was just because, and not so much the battle. I mean, the battle obviously is is epic and grand, and like just so layered in terms of every. There's just so much fighting, so many crowds, so many effects. Cinematography is insane. 
like just every element is uh, turned on to max. Um, but I think what was even more challenging was the moment after that you're speaking about Glenn, and that is like the the moment between the five of them that eventually just are like ends up being Raya and Namari with with the the task to to um, save the world, and and there was just something that was the an- the question that we were trying to answer from the beginning is we we've established that what's what's wrong with the world is that people don't trust each other anymore and without trust they're never going to be able to connect without trust they're never going to be able to see eye to eye or to like really coexist um raya's dad has mentioned that from the beginning sisu the dragon when she she comes into the picture reinforces that and that's what raya's been learning throughout the whole journey but in order to what this moment at the end of the movie does is that in order for her to like really succeed she has to prove that it's it it can't just be a philosophy it has to be something that she truly believes and the only way that we figure that would happen is is for her to to trust her enemy for her to trust the the antagonist of her movie uh, and then it it facilitated this moment that i think we're all super proud of because it we've never seen anything like it where where the end of the movie, the final decision that brings that you know makes it all okay, we take it away from our protagonist and we gave it to our antagonist, and and she's essentially saying, in order for this to work, I I I need to step away from it and trust that you will do the right thing and that trust that what you want is the same that I want, uh, and then you're left with that big question like, is this is this woman who we've been looking at? Um, the 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 least likely person to trust in this movie, like, will she be able to uh, do what it takes to bring it all together? And she does. And and I think that finessing that moment and making sure that it was earned and that it was believable and that it was unexpected. Uh, but when she did it, there was enough work before to support the fact that that you know deep inside, even though she had been. Um, you know the 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 force that Raya was battling against. That deep inside there was that humanity, and there was that like she could trust. So anyway, I, I think it was the hardest thing to do, just because everything needed to add up to that moment. And it, if if we didn't earn anything in the previous scenes, you would just not buy it, and or you would just not care about Namari, or you would just feel like it was super manufactured. So so I, leading up to that moment and making sure. Um, we knew that it was a special ending. We knew that it was a unique ending, but we didn't really know that it worked until you know way, way later once so many of the pieces were in. We literally had so little time to earn their friendship before we broke it. It was like once that scene we kept rewriting, I don't know how many hundreds of times, that when they're girls and they're friends, so that you get the sense through it that um, either one of these could have been the other had they been born in different circumstances, and you you understand that they're kind of two sides of, of 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 the same thing, which helps you earn, despite what happens along the movie, it helps you earn that moment. 
Asnat, Carlos, thanks again for joining us. It's been, it was a real pleasure to watch your movie and, uh, it's been a, a great fun to have you on the Dolby podcast. Carlos, once again, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. This is fun. Many thanks to Carlos and Osnat and the whole team behind Raya and The Last Dragon. As always, all of the nominated filmmakers in the category were invited to join our conversations, but we weren't able to connect with the filmmakers behind Flea before our posting deadline. I'd like to thank all the nominees who joined us today and best of luck to everyone who's nominated in this category. We are looking forward to Oscars night, which will come to you live from the Dolby Theater in Hollywood on March 27th. You can find links to all the films we've discussed today in our show notes. But before you go, please make sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our dedicated podcast feed in our show notes, or you can just search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to be taking a little break to catch our collective breath after yet another exciting award season, but we will be back very soon with some ambitious new programming to go along with our usual coverage of the latest and cutting edge work on film, television, video games, and even podcasting. All that and much more is coming up, so please subscribe to us. Until then, thanks again for joining us. Sound and Image Lab is brought to you by the Dolby Institute. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with production support by Taylor Hines, and our production coordinator is Sonny Chen. Thank you for listening. <laughs>